Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, again, good morning. We're glad you're with us here this morning. I just want to echo some of the stuff about Summer Kids Club, our Vacation Bible School. Um, there's still an opportunity for you to volunteer. We, our Summer Kids Club has hundreds of volunteers and hundreds of children. And uh, volunteer, there are many volunteers who look forward to it every year, and it's a very, very important part of their journey. And, uh, but we still can use some more, and the good thing is there'll be training right after this service down in the Life Center for you. Uh, and I believe they have uh, some food there as well. But, but w- the reason we do it is for the children. We are seeking to reach those children with the good news of Jesus Christ. And w- while we know that some, some families, some folks from other churches will bring their kids, that's fine. We're not, that's not a problem. What we really want to do is reach those children who don't have a church home, who don't have that good news regularly part of their lives, who will come and experience the love of Christ. We, every year we see these, many of these children coming to faith in Christ. And so it is really one of the most important things we do across the years. So I, I hope you'll be thinking about who is it in your neighborhood or in your family that you can invite, encourage to come uh, and, and let God work. Trust God that he can do abundantly more than we can imagine or ask. And you may just be surprised how he, he responds. So uh, just... Keep that in mind. We're we're closing this series today that we based on a survey that back in May that you helped us with, where we asked you, what is it that makes you feel stuck? And and so many of your responses talked about some things we've already talked about, like fear or approval or or being overwhelmed, but also stuck in your job or in a relationship or as a parent or finding purpose in life. A, A lot of folks felt like their lives, as we read through, were maybe kind of insignificant. They didn't feel like they, there was a lot going on, the life that made a difference, or they weren't measuring up to something, or, or life just seemed ordinary, just daily, like maybe there's something wrong with that was kind of the implication. Author Jenny Allen wrote, I felt stuck because I thought this life was supposed to make me happy, and I spent most of my time and energy building it. I needed my life to succeed. I needed to matter. I needed my kids to be happy. I needed everything to work out now. But here's the thing. And this is what I want you to really think about this morning. Who said that job success or material things or happy kids or even our own happiness is the purpose of life? Now, yeah, it's, it's promoted that way. But just because Madison Avenue says it in a, in a commercial, does that make it so? Actor Jim Carrey wrote, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that's, it's not the answer. King Solomon, who, who lived 3,000 years ago, who, who the Bible says was the wisest and richest person ever, was really kind of the original poster boy for, for Jim Carrey's quote. The, the author of Ecclesiastes, which is found in the Old Testament, is not, is not stated. The book of Ecclesiastes does not state who its author is, but uh, both Jewish and Christian scholars have historically believed that the King Solomon was its author, who lived around 1000 B.C. And, and he had so much 
And, and the feeling is he probably wrote Ecclesiastes later in life. But here's, here's one thing he says, beginning in chapter 2, verse 9. He said, So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. You know, listening to Solomon, or listening to, (laughs) today, a Jim Carrey, is it just possible that, that many of us are stuck because we're pursuing the wrong things. We've, we've latched on to the wrong purposes in life. Think about it. There's an old saying, garbage in, garbage out. What you put in, what you focus on, kind of guides where you look and, and how you see things. But is it possible that, that in buying into a certain approach to life and in, in buying into certain values, it has caused us to completely miss the bigger picture, the, the real truth, that we're chasing the wrong meaning and wrong purpose, and that's why we can't find it, and we have this uneasiness about the life we live. Early in Solomon's life, he had sought God and, and, and God's wisdom to lead the nation of Israel, and God was so pleased that, that that was the heart of Solomon, that he was seeking that out rather than looking out for himself or what he could have. And the story of Solomon is told in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11, if you want to go back and read it later. later. And in the early chapters, what we see is that Solomon was really focused on God. That's really what mattered to him, where he, he spent his energy. And in fact, so much so that he builds the, the temple for God, the, the Jewish temple. And after he dedicates it, though, as you keep reading in the text, it it seems like there's kind of a subtle shift. Up to that point, he's really been focused on God. But after the temple is dedicated, after he's done this great work for God, it seems like the text increasingly focuses on Solomon and his greatness and his wealth. It talks about all of his wives. It talks about all the things he built. It talks about all the gold that was coming into his treasury. All these kinds of things. And less about God. We know he ultimately had 700 wives. Many of them married for political reasons. But right there we'd have to question if his wisdom was kind of waning. 700? I mean, think about it. Near the end of this section on Solomon, chapter 11, verse 4, it says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And you get the sense that in writing this near the end of his life, looking back, Solomon is looking at some of these, these choices and things he did, some of these slippery slopes that maybe he didn't intentionally go in this direction, but he began kind of moving away from God and focusing on, on good things, but not the best things, and allowing them to become more important in his life to the point where he begins to regret and see the damage and the harm some of his decisions have caused. 
Over and over again in Ecclesiastes, he tells us so much of what the world around him valued that he chased, that he had every opportunity to chase as the king, as a wealthy person that seemed so enticing, ultimately was, in his words, meaningless. But you know, sometimes when we chase those things, we don't know they're meaningless when we start. They look good, and everybody else is chasing them, so there must be something to it. But he chased it harder than anyone. And he got to the end and found there was nothing there. It was meaningless. And perhaps this wrestling of Solomon and, and perhaps our own wrestling tells us something. That it is easy for us to settle for counterfeits. For things that promise satisfaction and may in fact be, be good things. But we're never created to fill our hearts and fulfill our purpose. Sometimes the good gets in the way of the best. And maybe, maybe if we're feeling kind of stuck, if we're struggling with this sometimes in our lives, or this little uneasiness, there must be something more, or, or I, 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 I just feel like I'm on a hamster wheel and it's just going round and round and round and I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere, feeling stuck. Maybe this is God's way of challenging us that we were made for more than the things of this world. At the very end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon comes to this conclusion. He says, here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. And, and the word here, fear, is not like trembling in your boots that you're going to, they're going to, somebody's going to kill you so much as it is. I'm standing in awe of this creator who made me, who made all of creation, who is absolutely holy, who is absolutely pure and good and righteous. And I, in light of him, and as I see myself and how I fall short, I'm in awe. I, I am afraid because he is my creator. Solomon realizes the purpose of life isn't about fulfilling his pleasures, his desires, or even seeking happiness. It is to live for God, to, to obey him, to honor him each day of life. And, and yet so many people think about, you know, that happiness is, is the point. But here's the thing. I, I, years ago, I heard a definition of happiness. Happiness is when things happen to happen the way you happen to happen to want them to happen. Okay? Happen to happen the way you happen to happen to want them to happen. In other words, it's based on circumstances. It's based on how things are going. Are things going great? I'm happy. Are things not so good? I'm not happy. Is my job going great? I'm happy. Am I struggling in my job? I'm not happy. Is my, my relationship going great? I'm happy. If it's not, I'm not. And the point is that we weren't created to live in the vicissitude, this up and down, thrown about life of our feelings all the time in this happiness. And yet, the, the world around us says that that's the point. But if we're, if we're seeking happiness, then we're always putting ourselves at the mercy of someone else. And do they like me? Do they approve? Am I getting that promotion? Am I moving ahead? It's a dangerous place to be. It's an unhappy place, ultimately, to be. A place of restlessness. That's why Augustine, a few hundred years after Christ, said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Rick Warren, a few, a few years ago, wrote 
his bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life, uh, What on Earth Am I Here For?, which has sold like over 30 million copies. And, he, and interestingly, he begins the book with a very simple statement. But it's not the statement you and I would expect in looking for the purpose-driven life. But that statement, some of you know, it, it simply says, it's not about you. It's not about you. Now, you would think if somebody wrote that, it wouldn't be a very good seller. Because we want books that, that empower us, and books that, that tell us how great we are and, and tell us how to, in positive thinking or all these kinds of things that we can get ahead. And, and right off the bat, he's saying, it's not about you. And yet that statement is grounded, if you will, in, what, in the affirmation of Scripture, of what the Word of God tells us. The Lord God said in Isaiah 43, 7, Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. You and I were created for the glory of God by God. To be in relationship with him each day and to offer him our worship, our obedience. That's the picture we see in the very first two chapters of Genesis before sin enters the picture where Adam and Eve are with God and they are glorifying him. And then sin enters the picture in chapter 3 and that becomes a real struggle for us until we get to the last two chapters of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. 21 and 22, where sin is defeated by the return of Jesus. And once again, we see this sense of fulfilling our purpose, of living life the way it was meant to be. You know, we were made by God for his glory. It's sin that separates us from God, that leaves us to, to try to fulfill our God-given purpose on our own, to think, I can do this, I can read a book, I can try harder. Like that's somehow always the answer. I want to tell you, we cannot discover life's meaning by looking out around us at the creation, at the things that were made. We've got to look at the one who made us, the creator, and discern what his design, what his intent was. We can, we can do all these things, but if we're not going back to the creator, if we're not going back to the one who made us, we may be doing good things, but not the best things, the things God intended. We didn't create ourselves, so there's no way we can tell ourselves, here's what you're created for. Only the Creator can tell us that. In Psalm 73, Asaph talks about being tempted to envy wicked folks whose, whose lives seem to be going great. And we look around us, we see people who aren't of the greatest character, who do seem to be getting ahead in life, who are building fortunes on the backs of those that took, they took advantage of. But Asaph, in seeing that in his own time, just as we see it today, he thought about the judgment that would come their way at some point when they met Jesus face to face, if not before. And because of his faith in God, he chose to see life and his purpose differently. He writes in seven, chapter, uh, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Asaph said what many others in the Bible said. Listen to how Paul put it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever we do, not just on Sunday in church, 
But Monday at work, Tuesday in the classroom, Wednesday at the ball field, Thursday in our neighborhood, Friday in our family. In 1646, the Westminster Confession of Faith for Protestant Reformed Churches was written, and it says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So people keep seeing this truth, but we keep struggling with it because our world tells us that we ought to be trying to be happy. We ought to be trying to get ahead. We ought to be seeking those things. Those ought to be the purpose of our lives. And yet, the farther we run down those rabbit trails, the further away we get from the truth. That's why we use language like repentance. That sometimes we've gone so far down a trail, we have to confess and turn around and get back to where God wants us to be. Whatever we do, wherever we are, to live for the glory of God, to honor Him and to grow our relationship with Him day in and day out. That's what you and I were created for. We were created for more than, than a job. We were created for more even than being parents. Am I, though, honoring God in my daily relationships? Am I honoring Him in the workplace with people who aren't very interested? Am I honoring Him in my family? As I, am I honoring Him as I drive on the freeway? See, this is God's will and purpose for each of us. And, and so much else that seems so important is really just about the details. Not bad things. Just not the most important thing. But if we don't get the purpose right from the beginning, nothing else goes in the right direction. Nothing else works. If I give you directions and say, this is how you'll get to this store or my house, and you start in the wrong place, the directions won't get you there. The directions only work when you start at the right place. So often folks think, there's some big purpose that, that we're supposed to accomplish. That, that, uh, and occasionally that may be true for some of us. But, but for most of us, for most of the time, our purpose is to be exactly who God created us to be right where we are. Honoring and glorifying God in everything we do and say as the desire of our hearts. It's not necessarily about, about going somewhere else. Yes, a job may take us somewhere else. But if we're always looking, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side, but it's usually because there's a lot more manure over there. We think that sometimes the answer is out there. And so if I get a new job, or I find a new husband, or I move to a new city, that somehow that's going to fix it all. When in fact I've stopped putting God first and glorifying Him. Instead of getting ahead at work, which, which is not a bad thing, maybe my greater purpose is to honor God at my job and then entrust my job to God to work it out wherever I am. Instead of getting bogged down in the daily routines of being a parent and thinking there's got to be more to this. It's, I feel like I'm on a treadmill. I'm going nowhere. It's so daily. Maybe my greater purpose is to understand I'm here to help my children know God and learn to honor and, and glorify Him themselves. Our frustration with a life that seems to be on hold may in fact be a deeper sense that, that I'm failing to live out the purpose that God first gave me in the beginning, to honor and glorify Him right where I am. 
Granted, it is often not flashy, often not attention-getting. But that quiet intention to, as the Apostle Paul said, do it all for the glory of God is how God works in us and uses us for his good. Let's just consider an example. The, the disciple Andrew. How many of you have heard of Andrew as a disciple? Some have, some haven't. Okay, that's, that's fair. Um, Andrew was the brother of Peter, who became the leader of the disciples and later of, uh, of the church. Um, he was sometimes, in, in, the, in the Bible, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the writings, he was sometimes included in kind of an inner circle with Jesus of, of, of uh, James and John, Peter and Andrew. But more, than, more often than not, Andrew is kind of left out. He never achieved kind of the fame or seemed to be the leader that some of the others were. In fact, after the resurrection of Jesus at the end of the Gospels, when we move into the book of Acts, Andrew's name is only mentioned one time in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, uh, after Jesus has ascended, before the coming of the Holy Spirit. We don't read about Andrew again in the whole Bible. He seems to have gotten lost in the crowd. But when we look closer at his life, we discover what, that what is revealed, that he, he was a man who did it all for the glory of God, and God used him in surprising ways, even when I'm sure he didn't expect it. John, in his gospel, the gospel of John tells us that uh, early on, he and, and, and Andrew were first followers of John the Baptist before they knew about Jesus. And John the Baptist was out in the wilderness pre preaching repentance and baptizing converts. In John chapter 1, verse 35, it tells us the next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. And elsewhere in Scripture, it tells us it was Andrew and John. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, and he's saying it out loud, but he's also saying it for the sake of Andrew and John, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And John tells us then that, that Andrew and John went and spent the afternoon and evening with Jesus. And they, and all of that apparently became convinced that Jesus was who John the Baptist said he was. He was the Messiah, the one that they had been looking to come for centuries. And so what is the very first thing Andrew does once he determines that this is the one they've been looking for? In verse 41, it says, Andrew first, first, found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Simon Peter. Andrew just simply introduced his brother to Jesus. And, and Peter would go on to lead the disciples. He would go on uh, to preach uh, this incredible sermon at Pentecost after the coming of the Holy Spirit that thousands came to faith. Sometime later in the Gospels, Jesus had gone to a mountain off to a mountain to be alone, to pray with his disciples. But the, the crowds continued to follow him, and, and Jesus felt sorry for him and, and wanted to feed them. And so he told the disciples, I need you to feed them. And they started looking around at the food they've got and the amount of money they have, and they said, Jesus, there's no way. We don't have nearly enough. There's no way. You need to send them away. There's no way we can do this. But in John chapter 6, verse 8, it says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five bar barley loaves and two fish. <laughs> but what are they for so many? Andrew seems, notice, he seems so unimportant that John has to remind us 
whose brother he is. He doesn't just say Andrew. He says Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Because he, he knows he's not particularly well known. But Andrew offers up what he found, what was available, what one little boy had as something small and insignificant as it seems, not thinking there's any way that five loaves and two fish could feed thousands, but he just does what he can do. And I'm sure he felt like, based on what it says, this wasn't going to make any difference. But rather than getting caught up in what he was feeling, he just did what he could. A lot of times we get stuck because we feel like we can't do anything. It won't make any difference. I don't have anything to offer. But Andrew went ahead in spite of that. No one else is recorded doing this, only Andrew. And what we know is Jesus used those five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men plus their families. Now, who could have seen that coming? Who would have thought that this little meager thing I found, it'd be understandable for Andrew to say, you know, there's no sense even bothering the master with that. This is nothing. But instead, he just offered what little he had. Look what Jesus did with it. You know, we don't give Jesus enough credit. We don't think he's God. We don't think he can do infinitely more than we can imagine or ask. And so we don't try. The truth is, the gospel story would be profoundly different without Andrew. Even though he gets so little attention, he chose to honor and glorify God by being obedient in little things and trusting God. And God used him powerfully. Even if Andrew wasn't particularly visible in what he did. Maybe you and I need to reevaluate our purpose in life and how we live that out. Maybe it's not simply to be happy. Or become well off. Or succeed in our career more than our coworkers. Maybe it is something much more significant and simpler and eternal. So many of us have become so enamored with our culture and We've bought into the values and we think we've got to do this and we've got, to, we've got to achieve that and we've got to take these steps versus trusting God. We live each day trying to please and fit into the world around us when in fact the Bible tells us God says we are called to be holy. What does holy mean? It means to be different, not to fit in, to be different from the world by focusing not then on ourselves, which is the way the rest of the world is, is governed, but on our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and on our relationship with others. Jesus said the great commandment was to love God and to love our neighbors. Here's the thing. Jesus is calling you and me to do what we can right where we are to be missionaries in our families, in our offices, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. Yeah, maybe there is some other purpose that God has, but I guarantee you he is calling every one of us to that. To offer whatever we have. 
as meager as it might seem. We look at somebody else and think, look, they, have, they can do so much more. It's not about them. It's about God. Can we trust him? Can we be used by him? And the testimony of Scripture is that if we offer what we have, God will use it for his glory in ways that, that we, we may not even imagine and which we may never even see the results of. And that's kind of hard because we like to see results. We want to see that something I did made a difference. But there may be that person that you come alongside, that you invite. There may be that person that you help out in a tough situation at work. That years from now, that kindness has planted a seed. And someone else invites them into a relationship with Jesus Christ and they make that decision. And you're long gone from the scene. And you think, it didn't matter. Why did I bother? But God never wastes any opportunity when we are faithful to him. He's calling us to offer what we have. And this means maybe we don't reach the top of our career ladder. Or maybe make more money than our friends. Or drive a better car. But is there something any more important than being of service to the Lord of the universe? To the God who created us, who loves us? Maybe it means we're raising children, even though it seems like we could be doing something more. It seems so, so daily, so endless. But is there really anything more important than bringing family members to Jesus? It's not about the earthly rewards or about the recognition of others, but it's simply obedience to, as Paul said, do it all for the glory of God. And will we feel elation in doing those things Will we feel huge purpose in the moment? Maybe not. Because the danger is we're, we're caught up in it. It has to feel that way. Yet Solomon, who tried to find fulfillment through what he felt, concluded, fear God and obey his commandments, for this is everyone's duty. Now, duty is a word that a lot of folks don't like. They, they, you know, why should we do that? But Solomon shows us in Ecclesiastes 12 that it is a good description of how we're to move forward in this life, fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. I remember Mrs. Daniels, who taught my five-year-old Sunday school class. Now, when I say I remember her, what I mean is I remember her. I don't remember a thing she ever said to me. Nothing. I don't remember any interaction with her. I just remember her. And I think that's because she must have been kind and loving. And she, she showed me the love of Christ in a very simple way as a child. And I couldn't, I wasn't necessarily connecting it to God at that point. But I know years later when I finally felt a call to ministry and I started reflecting on my life, that was one of the names and the faces that popped into my mind. That somehow God had used her. I still don't know how. Can't tell you. But somehow he used her. And I guarantee you she didn't remember me. I guarantee you I, I was probably just another pain in the rear kid. But God used her because as simple as it was, 
she offered what she had, what she could do. Fifty years later, I don't remember anything more about it than that. But I think part of why I'm here is because of her. We were created to honor and glorify God. And, and, and so, among many other things in our, in our home, and our work, and our school, and our neighborhoods, therefore, we volunteered to serve in our church as a part of our duty to God, trusting that he will take what seems like nothing more than five loaves and two fish and maybe bless thousands somewhere along the way. I volunteer to serve, not because someone else should, but because I can, as a way to honor God and glorify my Father in heaven. I invite friends and family to church, especially to Summer Kids Club, because that's part of my purpose, as it was part of Andrew's purpose, as it was, is the part of every follower of Jesus Christ. And some people are going to say No. And some people are going to laugh at you and they think you're crazy. Maybe only one in ten will get it. But one in ten, what difference that could make? You take that a couple of three generations as God works in that person and then those that they're influenced by and so on. You know, we talk about what is God's will for my life? But here's the thing, being obedient to Scripture. Now, I'm going I'm to pull this number out of my hat, okay? This isn't anywhere in Scripture, so I'm just, just get it. But if I had to say, how much of God's will do I find in reading Scripture? I would say 95% of loving my neighbor, of being kind, of being gracious, of sacrificing Yes, there are a handful of things about, should I have taken this job or that job? Should I live in this house or that house? Should I buy this car or that car? Yeah, those are, those are some, some things that you're probably not going to find in Scripture. But the truth of the matter is, most of God's will is clearly spelled out right here in God's Word. Most of it. And when we say, I, I don't know what God's will is for my life, the first thing we need to ask is, am I seeking Him in Scripture and am I seeking to be obedient to what He says? Am I reaching those who are distant from God? Am I serving in my church and in my community? Am I giving of my resources? All of those things, they may seem insignificant. Just as, just as Andrew bringing up five loaves and two fish. And yet look what God did through Jesus Christ. Could the dailiness of life be the setting for small, regular acts of faithfulness that'll glorify God? Could that child be the next Billy Graham? Could that baby that you rock gain such a comfort from your love that God can work in that child as they grow older could the kindness you offer someone at the office who's struggling with sins in their lives help them respond at some future time to the love of Jesus? In an earlier century, Brother Lawrence in his book, The Practice the Presence of God, which is 
a free book on the internet, by the way, discovered that he could honor God in the peeling of potatoes when he did his best for the sake of others. Could it be that we, we have been so focused on purposes in life that, that aren't bad, that aren't terrible, but, but they're just not worthy of the God who created us? And changing our perspective could then change how we see everything. Because we've gone so far down a path, we think that we have to keep going down that way, and we don't see the world as it really is. We, we've been clouded. Stephen Covey uh, tells a great story in one of his books about a, a father who got onto a, a subway with three children. And they sat down, and, and immediately the kids just went bonkers. I mean, they were bouncing off the walls, and the dad is just sitting there with his, his head in his hands and, and seemingly oblivious to his kids. And you, the people on the subway car are increasingly turning their eyes, and they're looking at him, and they're staring, and they're getting angry, and they're, and they're thinking, why can't you control your kids? And finally someone says, sir, your kids are going wild. And he said, oh. I'm so sorry, we just, we just left the hospital where we said goodbye to their mother who just died. And I guess we're just having a hard time dealing with it. You know, when, when I suddenly know that, it changes my whole perspective and how I see what they're doing. And if we understand that we weren't created just to be happy, or just to fulfill our goals and purposes. But we were created to glorify God. If we can change that perspective, it changes how everything works in life. It changes how I see my life. It changes how I, I deal with adversity in my life. It changes how I treat people. It changes how I feel about myself. This, this change of focus doesn't come easy. And it's why... We worship weekly. Can you remember every worship service you've ever been to? I guarantee you, you can't. But I guarantee you, God is using every single one to transform your heart a little bit more. Do we spend time every day reading God's Word and in prayer? Maybe you don't remember what you read the whole week, but God's Word never returns void. Are you spending time with other followers of Christ and engaging them in conversation about God's word and, and all? I guarantee God is using it. Are you serving? I guarantee you God uses that. These are critical means of God's grace that he uses to transform our, our perspective and our hearts. It's these daily practices. It's this faithfulness in the little things, in the daily things, in the things you think no one else would notice or care about that God has gifted you and empowered you to do that he can use to turn five loaves and two fish into food for thousands. I want to be honest with you. I believe this is a big part of how you and I get unstuck in our lives because too many folks have been focused on purposes that will never satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. Are we looking to Jesus are we keeping our eyes on him? There's an old chorus. And I'm going to try to sing it because I don't care if it's bad. 
But it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you all sing that with me? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God can change our lives if we will look in the right direction. Our prayer team is going to be down here. If you need to talk to someone, they would love to do that. If you need to sign up to serve, go out these doors. If you want to help with Summer Kids Club, go down to the Life Center. I want to close, and I'll be out here, by the way, if you want to say hello, if you're new, I would love to meet you with some friends. I want to read to you as a closing what is a benediction. A benediction is not a prayer, it's a blessing, so you don't have to bow your heads. But this was written by Richard Halverson. He was a pastor and at one time was the chaplain of the Senate of the United States of America. And he closed every service with this. And I only came across this yesterday. But I want to share it with you. Would you stand right where you are? Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of the Spirit, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, his power. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. See you next week. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.